You're listening to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello, you're listening to Planet Pod. I'm Amanda Carpenter. And I'm Steve Malkin. And this week we're talking trees and seas. The challenges facing our oceans and our precious natural resources, the woods around us. Um, we're joined in the studio by some fantastic guests. I'm going to introduce you in a moment. But um, first of all, welcome back, Steve. Oh, hey, it's good to be back. Thanks for having me back on Planet Pod. Yeah, we missed you last week. There were a lot of women in the studio and it was very noisy and you would have never got a word in edgeways. But we're back to normal now, so I'm outnumbered as per. So, welcome. We're joined by Paul Gisby from Oyster Diving. And Paul is not only a diving specialist and instructor, he also manages something called Aqua Theatre. And we're going to talk to you about that a little bit because I'm really intrigued. So, welcome, Paul. Good morning. And by Martin Turner, who's Partnerships Manager of the Woodland Trust. And I'm absolutely certain that everybody listening knows about the Woodland Trust. So, welcome, Martin. Good morning, everyone. So, as regular listeners know, uh, we like to do a good, the bad and the ugly slot where we ask you to think about something that's really got under your skin or made you excited or that you just want to share. So good, the bad and the ugly. Steve, what would yours be this week? Well, um, as usual, it's not the ugly bit or the bad bit. So I'm going for the good bit. Um, so we do lots of work with a fabulous charity called Cool Earth, who protects rainforests around the world by providing funds into indigenous communities who live in rainforests in the Amazon or Papua New Guinea or Congo. And um, just last week, uh, an organisation announced that through the work that they've done in um, property uh, development in the UK, this company, Prologis, had protected 10,000 acres of endangered rainforest around the world in Proven Amazon and PNG. Um, and just to put that into perspective, 10,000 acres is the size of London's Zone 1. So it kind of got me thinking, look, this company's made that commitment, it's protected this endangered rainforest. Um, what more could other organisations do with this work that uh, Cool Earth are doing and to protect rainforests by supporting the communities who want to continue to live there. So that's my good. I've loved this week for hearing about how rainforest has been protected by, you know, giving the ownership and land tenure to the people. Yeah, good and beautiful. How about you, Paul? Um, I'll do the bad, shall I? Is that all right if I do some bad? Yeah, you can do some bad. Um, the, uh, the fact that people are being educated in corporate life to recycle um, and at home as well so they're all chucking it in their bins but no one's really conscious of the fact that they're uh, filling these bins with more and more plastic and I know it's all very topical at the moment and probably people are getting a bit bored of it but they don't realize the long-term effects of the uh, the plastics that we're pumping into the oceans and um, the fact that they do break down I actually saw um, uh, a thing I think it was on that uh, horrible face plant uh, app and uh, this guy was saying, well, it doesn't matter because it breaks down and disappears, but it doesn't actually, it becomes micro. So the plastics become microplastic and metal's the same, aluminium's the same it, uh, as it degrades. So um, the fact that people are doing their bit, they think, by just uh, just 
putting the stuff in the right colour bins isn't necessarily the the, uh, the cure of all problems. So that's my bad bit. Okay, so just so everybody knows, we're not saying stop recycling. No. Please keep recycling. And those bits that are recycled properly um, don't end up in the oceans. But as you've said, it's only a fraction that gets properly recycled and a lot of that plastic's getting into the oceans. So, so, so stop buying plastic in the first place is exactly. what you're saying, isn't it? Mm -hmm. How about you, Martin? Have you got a good or bad or ugly? Perhaps I should do the third part of the trio then and, and do the ugly. Um, my ugly is poo. And it actually links into the, the introduction that the other guys have, have said, um, trees and recycling and littering. Um, poo in woods can be a really good thing. We even have a swatch book at the Woodland Trust about poo. Um, so you can go into the woods, look at poo, see whose poo it is, which animal it is, and it kind of gives an indication of the animals that are there. We're not talking human poo, are Absolutely we? Can I just clarify? Not. We're talking but animal poo here. The ugly poo is the poo that dog walkers pick up. That's brilliant. Pick your dog poo up and then hang in the tree. What, oh. What's that all about? I know. <laughs> it drives it up, me mad. Home. Yeah. Yeah. You know, litter in wood, protecting trees, woodland, litter, stop doing it, take your poo home. Yeah, the poo fairy, that's what it is. They yeah. think there's a poo fairy out there collecting the little bags, hanging on the hedgerows and putting them in the, in the bin. But actually what we really need to talk about is what we do with the dog poo. So we need to, at some point, explore that, turning dog poo into energy and powering the streetlights from the dog poo bin. But I would absolutely concur with that. So, Steve, you wanted to say something. Well, I, 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 you know, it's, a bit, uh, it's a new one on me. So that's a great story for me to then... <laughs> but but you're telling me, I'll go for a walk in some woods and I'll find, hanging from tree branches, packets of poo. Yeah. Why do people do that? Yeah. You they tell me. They think someone else is going to take it home. So I've got a... It's not the bear, is it? <laughs> no, I think we need to move on, gentlemen. <clears throat> this didn't happen last week. A lot of women in the room didn't talk about poo. Um, my good would be the plastic-eating enzyme they've discovered that can break down some of those plastics, so that would help to tackle that massive, great plastic berg that's floating in the, o in the ocean. But I've got, I've got a bit of a, a bad, possibly controversial one. And given that we've got Martin here from the Woodland Trust, I wanted to talk about the felling of the trees alongside the railway tracks. And I'm sure lots of people have seen the reports and there's been various online petitions. And, you know, the story is that it's a shocking activity and we're ripping down trees and they're being felled in the middle of the night and this is all traumatic and terrible. And, and you know, they're mature trees and they're under threat um, from the workers at Network Rail. And the rationale is that they create leaves and obviously that delays the trains. So, I mean, are we putting our own convenience ahead of the planet? Do we think it's more important we get to work on time that we preserve woods and trees? But Martin, I know you've got a background in rail before you joined the Woodland Trust. So, so I think you might need to put us straight on this. Is it, how terrible is it that all those trees are being felled? Yeah, I'm not sure I can put everybody completely straight on it because it really just broke last week, the story. Um, and we've been doing some investigation at the Woodland Trust into what Network Rail is doing. And just for everybody's information, we do have lots of dialogue with Network Rail. Um, we speak to them on a regular basis. So I can kind of put a foot in two camps here. Um, the, the Woodland Trust wants to see 
trees protected, we want more trees planted in the UK, we're probably at a deforestation state in the UK, losing more trees than get planted. Um, you know, people know about deforestation in the rest of the world, but we're pretty sure it's here in the UK. And when you've only got 13% tree coverage, losing more than you plant is a problem. Um, so we don't like to see trees cut down. From a network rail perspective, and I can't speak for them, I'm not representing them, but having worked in the railway industry for 18 years, um, network rail is responsible for looking after the UK network and the infrastructure that the trains run on. Um, and in the autumn and winter, the biggest cause of delay is leaves. Um, and network rail gets fined heavily if trains are delayed and people that want to go about their daily lives get really frustrated or actually badly inconvenienced with lots of knock-on effects if the trains don't run on time. So there is a logic to network rail managing the vegetation at, at the side of the railway and they're going to want to do that to minimise the leaf fall, to minimise the delay, to keep all us train travellers happy. Um, but unfortunately that means the loss of, of trees. Um, some loss of trees might, might be okay. I think what we really need to do is make sure that it's been doing in a properly considered and managed way. Um, and if it does affect veteran and ancient trees in particular, then that is something that would, we would really like to have a conversation about. And at the end of the day, um, if Network Rail have permission to remove an ancient tree, they've got permission to, to remove it. Um, and it's why we're doing lots of campaigning to get enshrined in law that ancient trees get legal protection, the same as a, a listed one building does, because we just don't have that here in the UK. So I can understand why they're doing it. They need to look after the infrastructure and keep the trains running. Um, there's a thing about right tree in right place as well. What was there first? The trees, the railway? Who Very knows? Very good question. So it sounds to me like this might be more of a communications issues so perhaps what's happened is as with the trees in Sheffield where people got very upset by the felling of the trees fairly ancient trees in the streets we probably need a bit more information yeah. and network rail probably need to to manage that communication process a little bit better because nobody wants to be inconvenienced on the way to work and that's completely legitimate but equally we don't want to fell ancient trees so so I think we put a call out to them to give us a bit more info. And obviously, if someone from Network Rail is listening to the pod and wants to come and tell us, we'd be delighted to have you. Be interested. Got incredible stats, though. So 2% ancient and veteran, 13% yeah. tree cover. We're actually in deforestation now in the UK. European tree coverage is about 37%, so we're three times worse than most of Europe. It's only 10% in England. And China going through this massive tree planting program aren't they and, mm -hmm. you know and we're actually falling we're, we're knowing we're mucking about to be frank it, 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 it's yeah. actually just falling apart oh, okay. around us and then the, the tree planting is one thing and it, you know losing trees to development and stuff like that's another but a hundred million ash trees to disease that's a um, hundred million yeah um, and, step up, haven't we? Yeah, and and it's why we're sort of campaigning for home sourced and grown as well. If stuff's brought into the UK, that brings stuff in it. We really don't want to be here. Oh, I, I love that bit about lobbying to get legal rights for 
um, ancient and veteran trees. And um, how do people help you lobby? Or is there a role that the public can play in that? We're, we're getting closer and closer. Um, it's, it's been probably the ambition since the Woodland Trust was formed. One of, one of the, 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 the red line for us is to protect ancient trees and woodland. And there's only 2% of it left in the UK. Martin, um, can you define what you call ancient in yeah, terms of trees? Yeah, so um, there are no records on the UK's trees further back than 400 years. So anything that was around in the original recording of the UK's trees. So it's trees and woodland that's at least 400 years old. And, and obviously lots of it is much, much older We've just lost our years. most ancient tree, haven't we, quite recently, wasn't it? The oldest tree in the UK was cut down, was that, have I, was that on the Welsh borders? I'm not aware of that, so <laughs> I've learnt something this morning. I think one went. So obviously <laughs> ancient trees, we've got lots of trees that are older than, than, yeah. than 400 years old. And people might not know that the Woodland Trust had a campaign last year um, to celebrate the 800th anniversary of the Forest Charter, yeah. which was... Um, part of the kind of Magna Carta movement came just after the Magna Carta and protected forests and our right to roam and gather acorns and you know take our animals into forests so obviously lots of people don't do that now but can you tell us about your campaign and what you wanted to do as a result of that anniversary and the charter that you've pulled together? It's, it's really just reminding people that 800 years ago you couldn't do the things that you've just spoken about because Woodland was owned by royalty and the gentry and it was there for for their use their entertainment their pleasure um, and people that were trying to an eco, eco living out of the land just, just actually couldn't do it it was very difficult to survive so 800 years ago um, UK's woodland was handed back to the people basically and um, and we've the Woodland Trust owns a thousand pieces of woodland across the UK in England Scotland Northern Ireland and Wales free to access for everybody there's no charge to go into any of it and that ranges from a hedge it's a very spectacular beach hedge to estates in scotland like lock arcade um, and it's free it, it's out there you can it, it's nature's playground um, it's home to ancient woodlands home to the the most bi biodiverse habitat in the uk um, in fact, Epping Forest, which isn't a Woodland Trust site, has got the most biodiversity in Europe. Oh, um, so, so the charter's just really there to remind everybody that UK woodland's out there for you to enjoy. Um, it's cooling the air, it's absorbing carbon, it's providing habitat for wildlife, it's kids' playgrounds, it's free. Don't forget that it's there. Go out and enjoy it. And the more the le you learn about it, the more you're going to enjoy it, the more that you're going to want to protect what's there, and the more you're going to want to get involved in creating some more. Um, UK tree planting levels over the last decade has been the lowest it's been for a long, long time. So part what? of... Oh, I'm sorry, Oh, Steve. sorry, just going, why is that? Why? Um, oh, let's not get too political, but... And there was, in 2016-17, there was 525 hectares of woodland planted. So that's 525 roughly football pitches. That was 
10% of the target the government set in 2013. I say, it doesn't sound like a lot to me. No, we're way, way, way behind um, where we should be in terms of planting trees. Do you think and that I could be having an effect on the air quality? Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, if you, if you wanted to design um, the perfect aesthetically looking air conditioning unit that cools the air, absorbs carbon, um, makes people happy, you'd invent a tree. <laughs> <laughs> so Martin, can I ask you, who's responsible for the tree planting? So if we're not meeting targets, those are government targets, but does the responsibility for reforestation lie with the government? Does it lie with us as individuals? Does it lie with local communities, developers? Who, who should we be putting pressure on? I, I would say all of the above. Um, okay. Everybody can plant a tree, you can plant a tree in your garden, scout groups can plant trees in the, in, in, in the area around the scout hut, football clubs can plant trees at training grounds and we've got football clubs doing that. Um, we've got the Woodland Trust um, creating woodland, the, the announcement of the Northern Forest earlier this year um, where we'll be creating a forest that connects Liverpool to Hull. So how um, big will that be? That is Liverpool to Hull, however that big is. Um, 50 million trees. Okay, that's yeah, great. I need to figure out. Yeah. yeah. Um, and 15, th sorry, 13 million people live in that northern forest area. So it's every, every one of those planted a tree that has 13 million. Um, it, it's everybody. It's government. It's Forestry Commission. Uh, it's about everybody doing their bit. But... I think the issue that we have in the UK, you know, you, you talked, Steve, about rainforest and, and things like that. We've actually got temperate rainforest here in the UK. We actually manage some rainforest in the UK. The, the, the global awareness of the, the threats um, to trees are pretty well known. My kids know about it. My mum knows about it. Um, and people doing things to, to try and reverse it, and that's brilliant. We applaud it. I think the issue is that the awareness that it's happening on our doorstep is very, very low. Um, and I think if that awareness was raised, we'd see a lot more action. I mean, we're campaigning still to get the legislation for ancient woodland protection. The government's done a brilliant job. Michael Gove has been great. He's really standing up for trees. He spoke at parliamentary reception that we held in December. He's totally behind it. Um, and the new national policy planning framework has given wholly exceptional protection to ancient woodland, but it still doesn't get down to individual woodland and individual trees. So if you can really put the case forward that there's a better economic or social benefit for removing ancient woodland trees, you can. Um, and there's a misconception as well, chop some trees down plenty time, ten times more and that's okay. But you cannot replace no, and a 400 lot of, years of, of history. It's impossible. A lot of those ancient woodlands, unfortunately, tend to be where people want to build bypasses yeah. or new road schemes. And I certainly know, living down in Kent, there's been a fantastic new bit of road, allegedly. But we lost eight, eight acres of ancient woodland. And I'm not in that much of a hurry to get to the next town. There's you know? about 100 ancient woodland under threat at any yeah. one time. So people can get involved, they can campaign, they yep. can sign up to the new charter, the charter for... Um, they can sign up to the charter, they can sign up to the campaign for Enshrine and Ancient Woodland Protection. 
Um, families can join our nature detective programs and get a swatch book, maybe a poo one. Um, you can <laughs> become a member of go, the Woodland Trust. <laughs> to, to me, it's getting people out into the woods. Yeah. Once you've started to get out and enjoy it, you start to appreciate it and it inspires you to do things. And some of the woodland out there is totally inspirational. And I'm quite intrigued by the, the memorial centenary type activities yeah. you get involved in because for a lot of people, tree, people often plant trees in memory yeah. of other people, don't they? Or they, they sponsor a tree that you might be planting in one of your forests. So tell us about the, the centenary would celebrate the end of the, well, 100 years since the ending of the First World War. It's a great point, Amanda. Dedications is, is just growing and growing for us. And, and people do, used to contact us and dedicate a tree. Uh, traditionally, it used to be for a, a, a loved one that they'd lost. But we're now starting to get tree dedications for birthdays, wedding anniversaries, Mother's Day, Father's Day, you name it. People are really going, do I need another pair of socks? No. I'll plant a tree instead. Uh, but, yeah, yeah the, it's a great point. It's the 100th anniversary of Armistice this year, end of the First World War, um, and we really wanted to do something to commemorate that. So it was kind of a tribute to the past and the fallen, uh, but creating something for future generations to come and, and you know, that sort of showing the hope for the future. So um, building woodland for us future generations, all the biodiversity that can enjoy it. Um, so we're creating four centenary woods, um, England, Scotland, Ireland, Northern, uh, Northern Ireland and Wales. The biggest one's going to be in Langley Vale down near Epsom. Um, and it's coming on at, at a pace at the moment. Um, there's an opportunity for people and companies, if they want to, to dedicate groves of woodland down there. Um, and it's really good that the football communities got involved as well. Um, professional male professional football stopped during the First World War and the guys went off and, and fought. Um, so a lot of professional footballers were lost during the First World War. Uh, and part of the Centenary Woods is a campaign called Club and Country. And we're getting the FA, the PFA, the football clubs are getting really interested in supporting it. Um, and football kept going in the UK by women playing football. Women's football was bigger then than, than it is now. They kept the country going, they kept football going. Absolutely. Um, and a big part of the role that women played is part of the commemoration that yeah. we're doing. I'm not going to get a quip in there about how good women are in the <laughs> Footballing World Cup women's teams but you know i'm going to resist it but it's interesting because you've been talking about ancient woodlands so a natural resource that, that as an island we need to treasure and and look after but i guess a lot of people don't really think about the natural resource that surrounds us you know as an island we have this incredible wonderful natural resource for everybody to enjoy and you know one of the reasons we wanted to bring trees and seas together is those are two things that we've been gifted as, as a country, you know, by just sheer luck and our topographical location. And Paul, you're doing amazing things in the world of underwater and diving. And I know um, Steve's got all sorts of things he wants to ask you, but can I just ask you first, what is Aqua Theatre? <laughs> um, Aqua Theatre is a Cirque du Soleil style show that's on the back of um, 
without advertising a particular cruise line, but there's only one cruise line that has the ships that are big enough for it. Um, if I can just correct you on the introduction, because if any of my old production managers are listening, I didn't manage the Equa Theatre. They oh, were certainly I just promoted you. <laughs> Um, I was a support diver in the show, and uh, it's like um, there's another show going on under the water that the audience don't even see, and um, it's kind of a shame, actually, that the, that they weren't able to see it. A lot of the time they wanted to ask to see if they could see it or see footage of it, but it's um, a show uh, including divers, acrobats, dancers. Um, it's uh, quite an extraordinary uh, thing to be a part of. Um, so the, the audience see them above the water they do and you catch them when they dive in and yeah. make sure they don't drown and stuff like that's that that's it yeah they, it's a it's a moving stage so this the stage is made of three hydraulic platforms that rise and fall so sometimes the stage is a solid one sometimes the stage is a complete pool um and we're hiding when the stage is up because obviously they don't want to see a, a, a big fat old scuba diver sitting in the middle of the stage he's not that fat <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for that. <laughs> um but uh, yeah, so we have to hide when we're not needed, but we're uh, we're underwater when we are, and we catch them. And it's, it's good. What fun. fun! But a lot of your diving is not in a pool; it's obviously out in in in, in the ocean proper. So, um, so what's the thing that has most changed for you in the years that you've been diving? Well, in the years that I've been diving, I started as a as a seventeen year old um, snotty nosed kid, really, and uh, with uh, the British Sub Aqua Club amazing foundation that they've always been they've always been there um an institution for for british diving um i actually dive with paddy because it's more global recognized um, organization uh, these days um, i'm an instructor with them but we're trying to get the message into schools so that they understand a bit more about the, um, the plight of the oceans at the moment um in actual fact before i came along today i wanted to try and get some kind of link between trees and the seas and uh, I came up with a couple of uh, little stories, which, um, but it's interesting how they link the two. Um, obviously, there's uh, there's ecosystems that are surrounding the the tree. I'm going to start waving my hands now. And I'll the um, the, uh, the so the the animal life that's are, that are living in the trees. There's one particular study that some scientists have researched in uh, the Pacific, um, the Palmyra Islands, where the uh, uh, they started cutting the trees down. And they started replacing them with coconut uh, trees, uh, coconut uh, plants, so that they could uh, try and get some commercial gain out of it. You would think that maybe there would be a correlation from the from the environmental point of view of um, where they, you know, produce the or help us with our air. But um, in actual fact, uh, what's happened is that the uh, the bird life that were living in the uh, the native trees have gone because it's, it no longer provided them the cover that they needed. As a result of that, um, going back to Martin's poo, um, <laughs> the poo mind. that they... <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not hanging in bags over there, that's the difference. But um, uh, the poo that was falling onto the, onto the forest floors was actually creating uh, nitrogen and that was washing into the, or, you know, as, as the land washes into the ocean, um, which was creating a habitat for manta rays to, to, to survive because um, it was actually encouraging um, phy uh, uh, very well-needed uh, phytoplankton, which actually provides between 50 and 85% uh, of the world's um, oxygen, um, as well as food for these animals. And they noticed that um, 
the animals were actually disappearing from parts of the oceans surrounding these islands. Um, and it, it turns out that it's purely down to the fact that um, the the tree, the native trees are no longer there and they've been replanted with coconut trees. So there's all sorts of knock-on effects, aren't there, mm-hmm. from you know a decision that's made from an economic point of view and into a sort of it has a huge environmental impact that potentially if you're losing manta rays you might also be losing tourism as well so as a scuba diver you know mm-hmm. we've been i've been quite fortunate to dive in some amazing seas what mm-hmm. you know what are the what give us one of the taste of one of the best dives that you've done and um every dive is a good dive uh, there isn't there isn't a bad dive but good dives um this year i was fortunate enough to go to uh, mali in maldives and i, I dived to a load of the atolls out there and um i was very fortunate to be able to dive with the manta rays and they are honestly like angels under the uh, under the under the ocean um a lot of people have tried snorkeling and i always compare that to looking through the window so um when you become a scuba diver you actually pass beyond that window and you're into the into a completely different world then and uh, honestly, when you're sitting on a sand bed and you've got your torch shining above your head to encourage the plankton in, and you have huge manta rays sweeping above your head, just scooping up the, their dinner, it's, um, it's something to behold. You know? so it's often a world that many of us haven't had the opportunity to see, but, but in the same place, you're in that sort of position where it's, you're being you know, in, in another of nature's playgrounds, but, but it's another playground which is under threat as well so are you seeing change within the period of time that you've been diving uh yeah we are we're um, there's a huge change um in actual fact many sad sites i was in thailand a couple of years ago in Krabi, and uh, all along one side of the o- the island it's only a small island but all along one side of the island the, the whole of the beach area was just it was deserted of people because it was covered in plastic and, and rubbish man-made rubbish and that's having a knock-on effect. Now, even though it does break down and, and degrade in time, it becomes these microplastics, which um, are actually killing um, animals. It becomes toxic in their in their gut. Um, but also things as small as toothpicks, plastic toothpicks, um, they're killing uh, bird life, uh, fish life. There was a uh, there was a, a, a documentary a few weeks ago where. Um, they were filming these albatross and baby albatross were dying because the, the, the parents were coming along and they were picking up these plastic. And people have seen that on TV and I think this is sort of, um, you know, generated this huge campaign about, okay, what are we doing with plastic and so on. But there's also an issue around sort of heating the sea and I know there's sort of a lot of reefs are under threat, significant yeah. threat, aren't they? Because yeah. of the warming oceans. Well, everyone knows the plight of the Great Barrier Reef. Um, it's uh, there's a lot of propaganda surrounding the Great Barrier Reef. Most of it, in actual fact, it was proclaimed dead, um, 100% dead, um, just a few years ago. Uh, they say it's recovering. It's not in actual fact recovering. It's us that are going along. We're creating coral life that's um, that's able to cope with the changing sea conditions. So, um, in actual fact, the live coral that's on the Great Barrier Reef um, is not native. So it's, uh, it's. How does it get there? Are we planting we're it? We're planting it. Yeah, it's being created in laboratory circumstances, and and also in other parts of the world, and then it's been transported there, and it's being replanted. So it's like underwater reforestation. Kind of, but it's it's a sad fact that. Um, but it's not as good. Not such good quality. It's not, it's, it's, it's natural. It's a it's a natural plant. But the thing is, um, 
if the native plant were there, it wouldn't survive. And that's a direct effect of what we're doing to the planet. And so, is that because it's hotter? Is that yeah, warming? Yeah, rising sea temperatures. And they're rising alarmingly fast. As I mean, Steve's an expert in all that. So, so. It is, you know, um, do you think, though, that it would help the world to encouraging... Sometimes we talk about this stuff and it becomes, you know, a little bit over... Um, it's too alarming and it creates a sort of a sense of inertia for a lot of people. So it's a massive problem. What can I do about it? But, you know, getting people into woods, but getting people into the sea, it's a bit more challenging than getting, yeah. it's, it's hard enough getting them into woods, no doubt. But how do we get more people into the sea then so they can experience what you experience? Because it is stunningly beautiful, in which case there's possibly more chance they might protect it by changing behaviour. Yeah. Um, we're actually doing a lot of work with schools um, we're starting because you can dive as young as eight you can actually have a go as young as eight um, and a lot of schools are picking up on it now and it's becoming an extracurricular activity um, isn't it incredibly expensive though Steve because I, mean, I think people you've been talking about going to these beautiful locations which are many thousands of miles away and and you know the perception might be that this is a slightly elitist expensive activity whereas walking in the wood is presumably free so um is can kids afford it absolutely it's cheaper than golf um not sure that's a, a marker but <laughs> <laughs> well people do golf and they cut trees down to make golf courses so i'd rather see an ocean that i can dive in for free than uh than a, anyway i'm not maybe i shouldn't do it but the schools are sponsored to do it and so they, they yeah um, parents are willing they, once they realise the benefits of it it actually helps with uh, a number of curricular studies mathematics um, come into it uh, physics come into it the Boyle's law biology comes into it geography they learn all about geography and even history you know we do a lot of studies um, interestingly enough you were saying about World War II uh, and there's a tie in there because there's a lot of World War II wrecks that um, are out there Thistlegorm is one of the world's um, the uh, 10 best dive sites in the Red Sea which is very accessible it's only four and a half hours on a flight to to Egypt Egypt unfortunately continues to get bad press um, but it's an incredible place to go diving and in actual fact because uh, many people haven't been going there for a number of years now because of this so-called threat out there um, the uh, a lot of the plant life and the coral life has actually had time to recover and once yeah, they do open up it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? We want more people to experience the ocean, but equally yeah. we don't want to have so much tourism that, that we damage what it is we're going to look at. So it's, it's making that balance, isn't it? Yeah, well, if you dive properly, um, then you won't be damaging the environment. Um, in actual fact, the, uh, the, the marine life are as fascinated by us as we are of them. And when you do get used to it, is it I mean, Jaws was the worst thing for the diving industry, that lousy film in the 70s. Um, uh, I wish they could ban it because uh, sharks are, in actual fact, an incredible creature. They're, uh, they're not naturally aggressive towards us. That's why there's only seven uh, fatal shark attacks, I believe, last year. Seven or 12, I think. Um, whereas we kill 11,500 sharks an hour. Yeah. Um, there are many different types of sharks as well, aren't there? There aren't just those, you know, jaws well, like every, great exactly, whites. There's yeah. lots of little sharks that are, are really well, quite friendly. To be honest, the great white, um, I know a lot of people that dive with great white without cages. Like I say, they are interested in us. And so long as you don't antagonise them, and what they do, um, they go and they start chucking uh, frozen lumps of uh, tuna uh, meat in there and, and it just antagonises them into a feeding frenzy. Oh, I'm with a hate tuna. I'm with the sharks <laughs> on that. <laughs> 
So you're listening to Planet Pod and we'd love to hear about your experiences. If you've been diving, if you've been walking in the woods, if you've things you want to share and are good or bad or ugly. So don't forget, get in touch. Um, you can tweet us on at planet underscore pod, capital P, capital P, or you can email us on hello at theplanetpod.com. So we've got those kind of beautiful natural resources around us and here on on, the, on our planet where you know our island we just have to walk out our front door and we find a wood if we're lucky enough to live by the sea we've got the the, the water around us can you dive in the uk seas i mean they're Absolutely, not as beautiful yeah. but oh they are they're incredible um there's amazing marine life just off of the south coast um we do a number of trips um around the the uk every year we've got one going to lundy which is uh, diving with the seals the seals are <laughs> The pup, they call them the puppies of the ocean, and they really are. Um, they're incredibly playful. They're not, it's not a challenging dive, it's only oh. between six and eight meters. So, you can be just a, a, a standard open water diver if you uh, if you wanted to go on a trip like that. I dived in the Farne Islands, which I believe is where they started the RNLI, I think. Oh, and right. we dived with seals out in the Farne Islands, yeah. which is Wonderful. off the coast of Northumbria. I That's think. right, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're um, going there later in the year as well, and it's stunning. And um, you jump off a rib and then you roll into the sea and then you sort of, you go down into through a kelp field and down there, flitting around in the kelp are seals and it is stunningly beautiful and it's just around our great coastline. They come and find you. In actual fact, I was, uh, when I was last in Lundy, um, I was diving with a, a, a GoPro and I was filming a friend of mine and he had a seal playing with his fin. And uh, I suddenly felt a weight on my head. And I thought, what the hell was that? And I looked up and there was a seal looking. Um, it's just sitting there with his fins either side of my head watching what I was filming. So they're completely aware of what you're doing and they're watching. You know, they're, they've been, they're part of it. And they welcome you into the ocean. That's what's so sad. When you, the more you get connected with the ocean, the more you realise that um, they don't mean us any harm. So why do we do all this to them? You know, they're... They're, they're very welcoming to us, including sharks. Oh, no, I'm absolutely with you. I love sharks. We <laughs> always ask our guests to, to, to share a call to action, and I kind of think I know what yours might be. And can I ask you to stay off the poo, please, boys? <laughs> but, you know, have you got something you'd like people to do as a result of listening today, Paul? What would your big call to action be for listeners of Planet Pod? I'm afraid, I've got to say, they've got to learn to dive. <laughs> Um, okay, that counts as an ad. <laughs> <laughs> At, no, I won't say that. Um, well, that's the only real way of appreciating the ocean as we as we have it. You know, unless you don't go, unless you go and see it, you can uh, even okay. snorkeling. Though, I mean, if you can, if you, if you can, can't dive, you could snorkel. What about people who like me are you know the wrong side of fifty? Too late for me. Absolutely not. Our um, oldest club member is seventy nine. So uh, and they're still diving. They went to Tasmania, uh, Tanzania. Sorry. Uh, they had a trip and they actually wrote a blog for us uh, because I thought, this needs to get out there. You know, we've got kids as young as eight diving and we've got a 79-year-old club member. Eight to 80. What I love is that as soon as you put a mask on yeah. and you just put your face in the water, even in the most shallow piece of water, then you unlock a whole new life yeah. underwater. And I think that, um, you know, in terms of getting to dive, I think even if you've got them to buy a mask on holiday and put your head in the water and you're going to see something completely new. It is. And that a planet might, within a planet. It is, it's stunning. Yeah. How about you, Martin? What would you want people to do as a result of today? Learn to uh, dive. 
Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, learn to dive. Uh, take a tree with you. <laughs> Plant it when you get out. Um, I mean, apart from physically planting or supporting the planting of the tree, I think, I think one of the greatest things that you can do Woodland Trust related is be a volunteer. Um, and the volunteering isn't just digging holes and planting trees. You could be dry stone walling. You could be um, giving some background and training on how to go and communicate in schools and educate kids about woods and trees. I think the biggest thing for, for me, for anybody that's listening, if you've learned anything about the threads to UK woods and trees, is tell people. Mm. It's raising yeah. the awareness that the stuff that's happening in the rest of the world is happening here. We've got to do something about it on shore and off. Yeah, so it's about being an advocate for these yeah. beautiful, you know, natural carbon sinks and these stunning, stunning yeah. trees that are and around there's, us. There's been a lot of chat this morning about talking to kids, and if that generation doesn't do something, I think it's too late. And fortunately, that generation seems to be getting it. Yeah. It's yeah. in their hands. And would you recommend any particular type of tree? Because some, am I right in saying some trees are better than others? Um, uh, we completely advocate UK native broadleaf species, um, and it is about planting the right tree in the right place. Give me some examples. So that's things like rowans, oaks? Yeah, um, oaks. Oaks are great native tree. Ash, um, although we've got ash dye back in the UK. Um, if anybody remembers Dutch elm disease, I'm sure you're all too young to remember it. It killed about 50 million elm trees in the UK, and it, I do remember it. It was everywhere. It was on Blue Peter, the news, everything. Ash dieback's going to kill 100 million ash trees wow. in the UK, so we need to replace ash. Um, so, yeah, sweet chestnut, holly. Um, there's, there's a whole array of UK native trees, and we need to make sure the ones that are planted in ancient woodland survive. So we take the non-natives out or thin them out. Um, and everything that we do will be with UK native trees. And if you haven't got room to plant a tree, you could think about planting a hedge as well if you've got those natural yeah. species. And, and, and species. connectivity is massively important. So many hedges got ripped out in the UK due to agriculture. Um, and farmers are actually starting to put them back because they actually see the benefit to farming, mm -hmm. the biodiversity, pollinators, vitally important. And, and it's why we're doing the northern forest. There's patches of woodland all over the UK, and if we can connect it all together, it will just make such fast improvements to, to the countryside, biodiversity, air quality, uh, surface water management, you name it. Okay, plant a tree, many trees. Oh, for me, um, well, I can already dive. I'm fortunate in that respect. So um, I'm, I'm with you, Paul. But um, I've, I've learnt a lot about trees today. Good. So what I'm going to do is uh, two things, I think. Um, so it's kind of about me doing stuff. I would, you know, if everyone can plant a tree from who's listened to this show, that would be fantastic. So I'm going to do my bit. I'm going to plant three trees for my three boys. Um, and then um, I'm also going to see if I can join the Woodland Trust and then give you a bit more of my support. So maybe other people out there might want to do the same. Not a member already? No. Oh, it's all no. association and stuff like that, but not the Woodland Trust. Oh, join. They're Sorry. fantastic. But you've got me <laughs> now. Okay. Lifetime membership coming up. You can always get someone to buy it for you for your next birthday as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Buy it for your boys as well as plant a tree. 
my call to action is keep listening to Planet Pod. And more importantly, get in touch with us because we really want to hear what you think, what you think we should be featuring on the show, um, the guests we should invite in. Of course, huge thank you to our guests, Paul from Oyster Diving and Martin from the Woodland Trust. And as always, an enormous thank you to Jim, our producer, who keeps us on track. Never easy. We'd like to thank the Breakthrough Group, who provide us with the space to record in. Planet Pod is brought to you by The Planet Mark and Aco Management. So tune in next time and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.